Welcome back to Talking Guitar, brought to you by the Carter Vintage Exchange and the North American Guitar in Nashville, Tennessee. Lindsay here, and this week I am thrilled to talk to one of the first luthiers who has boldly embraced the new CVE Selfram Workshop model, Jake Minier of JKM Guitars in Northern Ireland. Taking the formal and studious approach, Jake went from a university guitar making program in London on to a seven year stint working as part of George Loudon's team in Downpatrick, where he honed and developed his skills working on thousands of guitars. By the time the world shut down during the pandemic, he was ready to launch his own shop. Jake's acoustics caught my eye immediately with their elegant curves, natural wood tones and textures, delicate inlay work, and as guitarist Gary Lutton demonstrates, their beautiful tone to match. Please enjoy my conversation with Jake of JKM Guitars. But yeah, so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm especially excited to talk to you because you were, I think, one of the first luthiers, or I guess probably one of the first luthiers that like I sort of play, like worked with to place an order for some guitars, but then we changed the model and I yes. didn't have you send them in, which has you know, been such a disappointment, but um, it's still been exciting to work with you because you've done such a great job with your with your media. And then you just had those demos done with Gary Luton, Lutton? Uh, Lutton, yeah. Yeah, those are yeah. amazing. So it's, it's, it's exciting to sort of see the possibilities of the new model with someone like you who's already just doing such a great job with it. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear more about your backstory and, and share more about your, just your evolution into a luthier with our audience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, at, at, at first I kind of got into guitar making, going into kind of university, so around 17, 18. But I'd originally wanted to be a doctor. That was kind of my my first goal. So I was doing all the science A levels. Um, but it wasn't until quite late on I was told that with just straight C grades, that wasn't an option. Um, <laughs> so I then had to look for alternatives and I was trying to find something science-y. Um, but nothing really popped up with being interesting. And then I found a guitar making course in London by mistake and it just got in my head. And then from that point on, I was like, yep, this is this is what I want to do. Um, so I told my parents, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. I want to make guitars. And they were surprised but supportive. And they, okay, we'll see how this goes. Like, um, So I went off to London uh, to university. And then by the time I brought back my first guitar, they were on board. They kind of saw what it was actually possible to do, which was very good. Um, so I did a three-year degree there um, and then went on to do a one-year's master's course as well. Because after I finished the degree, I still didn't really know what to do next. Um, so it was a bit daunting kind of going into the big world and trying to make a name for yourself. So I did uh, a one year's master's and then left and tried to go self-employed for about a year. But I just didn't have the, the key processes under my belt um, at that time. Um, my production wasn't fast enough. I wasn't very good at the social media thing and put myself out there. Um, so that's when I started to apply for different jobs in guitar making um, and the guys that got back to me were Loudon Guitars in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. So I applied in October and then I'd moved over to Northern Ireland um, by December. So wow. it was very quick. Um, it was very good. Um, so it was all of a sudden big daunting change. It was then working at the Loudon factory in a kind of production process. So everyone gets their own little section. So they do um, some soundboards or they do necks. And we do a collection and then pass them on to the next guy. Um, but it was very good in the sense that you got to repeat processes over and over again and really refine the skills involved in those. Um, it was a help with the speed and the processes of it, which was really good. 
Um, so there I worked on the sample department. That's where you know, doing the samples, resetting them, um, grading all the braces and including the braces on. I also worked in the inlay department for a while, which is the bindings around the guitar. And then I also worked in the sandboxing, which is uh, assembling the sides back and top the guitar and carbon braces. Wow. So a good, good, good variety of sections I managed to get. Yeah. Was there any department that you never really got into, or did you kind of do a little bit of everything at different times, but you just had those central focuses? I never got into finishing. That okay. was one section where they had their finishing guys, and they were great, so no one needed to write and really work with them. Um, finishing, and at the time, the sides department, so bending the sides, and so that was still daunting to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't get skinny, thin planks of all these exotic woods and create these wonderful shapes out of them. So that was something I then had to pick up and burn again and try and refine again once I uh, became self-employed. So I was with Lounge Guitars for uh, seven years before leaving in 2020. Um, so then go self-employed professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, but pretty soon after I, I left, I got a call from um, an ex-co-worker He's Jonathan Ross, fantastic furniture maker. And he had gotten a role as head carpenter for a uh, movie role um, for Dungeons and Dragons, which is out next month. Oh, so he gave me a role for me to help out be the assistant carpenter. So we'll make furniture pieces and all these fantastic things, old kind of um, medieval, almost Asian inspired uh, furniture pieces. So it was all of a sudden going into huge bits of timber compared to these tiny planks I'm always working with. And then while I was there, I was like, are there any instruments in this film? And oh yeah, there is actually, there is. There's a there's a loop thing. And I was like, can I make it? And they're like, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, I managed to get into making the loot that one of the main characters has. And it's it's part loot, part weapon. So that was quite cool. So I made up a prototype and I sent it to the producers. They tweaked it to make it kind of fit the role um, and then ended up making three identical copies. One to go to the props department, so they can make casts, molds, foam dummies, and then two playable loots. And then went to the uh, painters to cover them up and make them look old and then the drapes department to put these different materials on it. And then that's used in the new film coming out next month. I'm very excited about that coming out. That's so cool. That's such a little fun fact for, for you. <laughs> The next time you see Dungeons and Dragons in the trailer, every time you see the little loot poking out the Chris Pine, I think he's using it. Chris Pine's back. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have like I'll have a little something to tell people like I know who made that. <laughs> You'll see my name in the credits as it goes past hundred miles an hour. Right yeah. Um, so yeah, like that that ended about eighteen months ago, and then since then I've gone back into the guitar making full time mm-hmm. um, and just bring myself up from there really. Wow, that's that's such a yeah man. You're such you're so good at summing up your whole journey. That's awesome. So, for one question before I, I dive further back, um, have you had you made lutes before, or was that the first time you'd ever gotten uh, into those? They they had called it a lute, and they their kind of artistic design was it somewhat Asian, somewhat medieval European. Mm-hmm. Um, so the instrument was based off of a Chinese pipa, which is it's kind of an egg-shaped instrument that's played sitting upright mm-hmm. um four springs uh, wooden frets and kind of plucked like this 
Okay. But they wanted it tilted sideways and they put a kind of violin headstock on and um, kept a lot of the kind of keeper characteristics. Um, so it was a kind of weird hybrid, but it mm-hmm. turned out right. No one really knew what it was. So there was no real right or wrong. But then, of course, it needed to play and make a tune and it actually sounded okay. So nice yeah i mean i guess it's a it's a fantasy world anyway so it can be a little bit of its own thing <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it was it was an odd one because um there was a lot of things that the producers were looking for which i wouldn't necessarily say would be good for an instrument mm-hmm. um, holes everywhere and things busted <laughs> off and they could look old and i was like okay sure <laughs> <laughs> um also to back up uh, kind of the beginning of your story, I, I would love to hear more about your educational experience because it's it's always it's so interesting to see the different paths that different luthiers take and how some folks, you know, there's really they kind of just dive into it on their own or they they have they apprentice with one person, but you had a kind of more traditional, you know, uh, collegiate experience with it. And so I'm curious to know more about both the three year program and your master's program. Like how, what, what skills did you feel like you really walked away from the first with? And then what were you, what did you do the master's in order to, what what did you hope to gain from the master's program? So the, the main course, the three year course, which actually no longer exists, they closed it down. Um, but it was kind of the fundamentals of acoustic building. So we all started with a parlor based off a washburn parlor. Um, and then we were kind of given a bit more free reign to kind of pick a different model we wanted to do. We were trying to get about two instruments out a year, I think, which is actually pretty slow paced. So mm-hmm. um, back on it now, we probably wasted lots of time just hanging out. Um, so during that time, when we were given a bit more free reign in our kind of final year, I found work by a guy called Fred Carlson in America. Um, and he had done these amazing guitars, which had loads of sympathetic strings. Um, so somewhat similar to what would be in a Hardinger fiddle and also in a sitar. So it was a standard six string guitar, but had about 12 or 18 strings that you didn't play by plucking them. They just resonated as you played. Mm-hmm. And they went over a, a sitar bridge called Juwari, which then gave it the button Indian sound. It just sounded great. Mm-hmm. So I was really trying to make a sympathar, we called them. Um, but then, I was always running into issues, so I had a six-string guitar with 12 sympathetics, but it had 18 tuning heads, so as soon as you let go of it, it fell right on the ground. <laughs> um, and then I tried another one with tuning pegs, like on a, a dulcimer with a tuning key you need them, but then that was a bit inconvenient, so it went through a few different processes trying to figure out how best to replicate what Fred Carlson had done with his sympathetic guitars. And I never quite got it. It was nearly there, but so difficult with all the de- geometry of the guitar to try and keep 12 long strings inside the body going up the center of the neck without things touching or wrapping around each other. And yeah, there was a, little, a lot of difficulty with it. Um, and also, you know, depending on humidity, the sound would rise or drop and then it'd be in tune and out of tune. It was a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. But yeah. it's something I wanted to go back to because. I think it has a lot of potential for soundscape of the instrument to add all these extra layers that you don't put extra effort into getting out. Yeah. Um, is Fred Carlson somebody somebody who's still alive or has he? He's American, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't think he does. He does these. He's 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 always very 
creative with his designs. They're never just a guitar shape. There's always, I think he said to someone on his website, why does a box have to be square? So he always has these, I think he's done a paper mache one. It's all these flat, mad sculptures are really creative. Um, okay. I believe he's still going. I'm not okay. in a while. Cool. Yeah, that reminds me, there's, um, I trying to think of the builder's name now um there's a guy oh enka designs he he we one of our customers has listed from home uh like an electric guitar with a bunch of sympathetic strings inside that like somehow kind of sounds a little bit like an acoustic but um is like it looks like an electric body but i wonder yeah that it's it's an interesting idea that i think definitely has some potential because like i mean i i love droney droney things like i would love to have a bunch of sympathetic strings i'd be so into that <laughs> Yeah, if anyone, you know, running a, a bass line on the thumb, it would just really kick off every time you can tune it to a scale or a, a chord and really emphasize your music in that way. So I think we'd like to go back into it when I get the time. Yeah, that'd be super cool. Um, awesome. So so then or what did you eventually settle on for your like your your final project? Was that sort of it or did you go more yeah, um uh, intensive study of sympathetic, like you know, string physics and you know, different body dimensions, and and a lot more kind of sciencey based look at the, the problem and the issue. Um, so also kind of string equations that I can't remember anymore. Um, you know, a lot more physics based, which is where some of my A levels from school came in to help. Oh, interesting! Very cool. So then, so then with the master's program, what was the focus with that? Yeah, it was, it was just, it was just, it was just a more intensive look at the, the Simpletar idea. Gotcha. Um, I understand. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I had the option to go into a PhD, but I thought that might be a bit much to <laughs> PhD in guitar making something cool though. Yeah. I'd be curious to know what a PhD would look like if it would be more like sort of, I guess, diving into the traditional side of things or maybe going further into the esoteric or, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Like more modern, but I guess you could take it whatever direction you want to go. <laughs> Four years to figure it out. So uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so did the either the programs that you do emphasize like the business side of things much, or did you kind of is that kind of why you were like, uh, I'm not sure I'm ready to dive into being self-employed just yet? Yeah, I, I think the more people on the course felt that the course was very good at teaching you what to build, but they didn't give a lot of information on what you do with it when you get yeah. into the free work. Um, which I think, I don't know whether a lot of courses are like that, they stick more to woodwork and that's that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there was a lot of learning involved um, around guitar making that isn't woodwork, which mm -hmm. I've had to pick up over the last 10 years or so. Yeah, um, yeah. I suppose that's kind of the case with a lot of arts programs is like you go to school for music and you learn so much about music, but then you graduate and you're like, what, well, what do I do now? Like I can make yeah. music, but I don't know how to make money from music. <laughs> That's the tricky thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> how does this? How does this give me food to eat? <laughs> um, I'm I'm really interested to know too. Um, so like, so you kind of felt that drive to pursue guitar making. Um, were you coming at that as a musician with a passion for guitars that sort of went beyond the craft of it, or were you more interested from the craft perspective? I, I had been a guitar player when I was like 15, 16, 17 or so. Um, but I kind of, as soon as I got into the making, I found I was playing a lot less. You kind of get home with a thick scene where your hands are sore from stabbing yourself occasionally. Um, so I had, my playing has definitely dropped right off, uh, which is why I got Mr. Mr. Lutton in to help me with the demo videos. So I can't, I can just about manage cowboy chords now. 
a bit embarrassing. You go to a party and they're like, oh, you're a guitar maker. You must be great at playing. And they hand you something and you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, that's the funny. I, I'm even working at the shop. I play way less than I used to. And it's, yeah, you just, you get busy with the business side of things or with the building side of things. And you, you understand the guitars in a different way than a lot of players do necessarily. Like not, not every player maybe can draw a tone out of it that like you probably can because you're used to looking for it and like playing it in the right way to make a certain sound. But, um, but yeah, it's kind of a separate issue. I can make them to sound good, but I can't make them sound good. At the end. <laughs> Someone's figuring that one out. <laughs> what, what kind of music were you into playing before? Um, I was kind of more into kind of rock and metal. So I was a more of an electric guitar player before I started building. And then I've been predominantly an acoustic builder um, since then. I have dabbled in electrics, but acoustics, I find there's a lot more levels to it, a lot more different details you can refine and, and tweak. Um, while electrics, I find, are still very, you can definitely get a lot of range out of them. But they are more kind of based on the components that you buy to put into them rather than it's kind of all down to you really to, to get the best out of the piece. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you're kind of controlling the guitar sound more with an acoustic. Do you find that the market for acoustics is also, especially for like boutique acoustics, is maybe just more compelling for you? Like you're you're just more broad and open as far as like being a builder goes? Yeah, I, with, I've done with the electric bills I've done recently, a fair few of them have been like, oh, I really want a jazz master, but could you do it with a, this sort of neck or that sort of finish? While I'm not really too keen on doing kind of uh, kind of copies or replicas of like strats or tellies or that's just not my input. I'd rather do things that are kind of unique to my own style of things. Um, so acoustics, I feel there's a little bit more tolerance with people so they don't go, oh, I want exactly this model. They know a kind of general size or a general scale length and they'll have a bit of play around with specifics in that regard so they're a bit more open to um different sizes of acoustic guitars compared to electrics where they're kind of more I like what i've seen and i want another one yeah yeah that makes sense that's actually kind of an interesting point that i mean obviously there are people who build martin style or gibson style and that's kind of its own thing but it does seem like there is kind of an openness to well i like this builder style i'm going to just have them build me what they build versus yeah with the electric world it is a lot of tele style guitars strat style guitars etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah it, it does seem like there's a bit more room to grow as an acoustic builder in some ways yeah i think i think people are more they, they can kind of see it more of a kind of like you say the personal style of, of the designs to mm -hmm. that builder yeah so you worked for Loudon for seven years, um, but before we we go there, um, did who were your influences for for building guitars? Did, was it was it was it Loudon from the beginning, like even before you worked there, or did you have have some other folks that really drove your style? I can't quite remember if I'd come across them that much before mm -hmm. I'd applied them. I knew they were around, um, being a UK based builder. Um, no, back then I think it was big. You know, everyone was into Samogi at the school. He was kind of like, you know, the guy everyone tried to get in all the Greenfield as well. Um, they were the ones who were popularly, you know, peak peak builder. And everyone was like, oh, I'm going to be just like them. And <laughs> there were some high high goals. Um, but no, I have always found builders who have a kind of more modern aesthetic more appealing to me than. Um, 
like we were saying, kind of relicking vintage styles and trying to bring them up to date. Um, so people like Tyler Robbins, he's a very good maker. He's very, I just like his proportions and his inlay works kind of modern, but refined. Um, there's, there's always a risk of, I find, trying to be too different and then it kind of blowing the other way and it's a bit too harsh. Um, I'm always trying to be different, but just kind of refined and, and still appealing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So then, yeah, so I guess going back to your, your time with Loudon, um, what, what were your sort of your biggest takeaways from, from that experience? I think my biggest lesson from there was that you can do things quicker than you think you can. Mm -hmm. so we, were, we were a set, each department had a different set of jobs to do. And we had a certain quantity of those to do per week. And then while I was there, I think the production went up 50% while I was there, from 14 units to, to 22. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the duties are all the same. Not, you know, nothing really had changed. It just got better. You got faster and faster. Um, so I can kind of grade a top from 10 feet away now. I've seen so many. Uh, you know, I can strut a soundboard in 15, 20 minutes, and it's just... You, you just learn what to look for and then if there's an error you kind of figure out is there enough time to rectify it or is it going to cost too much time and you kind of move on to something else so being the, the ability to repeat a process a hundred times a month has been you know an un, unbeatable experience really yeah i bet um just so do you currently work by yourself uh yes i do yes yeah yes yeah, so you're this this small workshop here. I can give you a shop tour, but it'll take about four seconds. I'm going to be twelve by sixteen foot shed in the back of my garden. Nice. Um, so I am constantly tripping over myself and you know vacuum hoses and leads and things. So I think anyone else in here would be uh, an eye. But yeah. <laughs> also, then so yeah. For what is your your yearly output at this point? Um, last year I made. I think it was 14 acoustics and three electrics, which I didn't think was too bad. I thought that was quite good. Um, yeah. But I'm going to aim this year to try and see if I can get 20 acoustics built. Yeah. Um, in a range of kind of stock or kind of shows or shops, um, and then also commissions as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, it seems like the average for a lot of uh, single shot build or like builders who build just by themselves is maybe like eight to 12. So I, yeah, I was curious to know if that experience of, of working at Loudon maybe would help you to sort of, I don't want to say speed up the process. Cause that might maybe sounds like there could be some sort of like loss of quality, but that you kind of maybe have experience with efficiency that not every single shot builder has, which is beneficial. Cause then it means you can make more guitars. Yeah, I mean, for the most part is I probably hit every error in the departments that I've worked in a uh, hundred times already. Um, and I've known how to pull them back to being uh, you know, a good product again. So, you know, some slips or something get glued in the wrong place, you know how to, when to get it off, how to clean it up um, as quickly and as efficiently as possible. So it's as good as if you didn't make the mistake in the first place. So yeah. I think knowing all the kind of shortcuts and all the different ways to speed up and, and how to approach every problem and every solution for that problem has definitely helped and also working with all the guys there everyone was so willing to give tips and here's how i do it in my section and here's what to look for here and when i'm doing this do this and you, you know you, 
yeah, things pointed out you'd never noticed before because they've right. never been there for four, five, six years themselves and they can spot problems from a mile away as well. So. Yeah, that yeah, that must have been such a helpful experience to to just get to collaborate with so many people for so long. Yeah, like I didn't have a whole lot of experience in the fret working department, but the the guy there, Gavin, he was always willing to show me how to do things or what to look for, and yeah, it, everyone was just so willing to to share. And then when anyone did get a bit of time, they would kind of jump in to help some other department that was falling behind or anything like that. So. A lot of people were kind of multi-skilled and multi-fasted with a lot of good people there. That's awesome. So you're not from County Down, but you you settled kind of nearby Loudoun, right? Uh, I'm originally from West Sussex in the south of England. Uh, so I moved over here and now I am in Drumore, not where I live, uh, Drumore <laughs> County Down. Uh, so it's about 25 minutes south of Belfast. Um, right. Yeah, to be honest, like compared to what I used to in England, you can get from one side of the country in about three and a half hours so yeah <laughs> did you did, did you just decide to settle there because you'd been there for so long and established friends and just enjoyed life there? yes I've uh I've got a fiance here so um I'm I'm, I'm rooted yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you'll let me leave uh so no that's been good I kind of met it quite soon after moving here and then it was kind of set in stone from that really so nice yeah I mean Ireland's amazing so I don't I don't blame you for wanting to stay <laughs> I'd love to hear more about your models. So how did you decide, how did you decide on your particular models? Um, I was originally, I never really took any influence from the American sizing. I didn't really have a lot of interaction with them. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't, you know, start with triple O and tweak it right now. I just kind of um, figured out, I did a lot of the designs on um computer program. So I start with the fingerboard and the scale length and then I kind of draw boxes and, and add curves into the boxes until I get the proportions I like and then put the waist in the right place and um try and keep the lines as smooth. I don't really want any flat edges you see so I want to keep all kind of flowing and and, and uniform. Um so I did start out with I'm just I named all the models of the length of the body. So the bigger the number the longer the body. Um, so I started with the four eight five model. And then someone made a reference that it was very small. And I was like, oh, is it? And then I double checked some other measurements. And I was like, oh, actually, yeah, it's only about 15 inches wide. Like, no, maybe less than that. Um, so then I made a, a wider version of that, um, which is what I'm kind of setting as a standard for the 485 model now, which is what um, the ones I, I sent you the videos off on. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had a parlor size I was quite keen on, 435. Um, 24 inch scale neck and then uh 460 which is kind of halfway between the two um i haven't I, I made one of those but i haven't made the second one just yet and then recently i've added in uh, 514 which is the biggest which is a modified dreadnought size um because i just thought we were missing in the roster having this kind of big heavy strummer of a guitar mm -hmm. um a good few of them now uh really liking the results so Awesome. That's the kind of core I'm at at the minute. Um, of course, if anyone wants something a bit different, then I can figure something out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How open are you to, I guess, sort of designing something totally from scratch for a customer? Are, are, like, cause some some builders are like, no, I kind of have my things that I do. You choose from these. But are you more flexible on that issue? Yeah, as long as we can meet some sort of compromise. So if they were coming with some, say, criteria or aesthetics that I would really find not uh, meshing well with what I already have, 
then we might kind of try and pull it back and just kind of re refocus the, the idea. Um, things like my, my headstock design, I'm quite pleased with, so I'd love to keep that as is. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, having a larger body or a more narrow body or anything like that can be, can be tweaks. And I'm just sort of get to kind of have it look like it fits in the family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for uh, tone woods, do you have uh, any personal preferences, or do you are you some builders I know now are like staying away from Brazilian rosewood, but are you kind of open to whatever folks want as long as long as you can get it, or are you kind of having some specializations for yourself? Yeah, I had I had a customer who was looking to get African blackwood, and I could not source it for the life of me. No one would, mm -hmm. would ship it to to not in a single set anyway. Maybe if I bought a hundred, they they consider doing all the documentation, but it wasn't the price of it. Very high, um, so I haven't gone too much into CITES requirements for, for materials. I think there's a lot of there's a, there's loads of options around there, which don't actually encroach into the CITES. Um, so I've used things like Grandillo, which is a Mexican hardwood, that was really good. Um, Palfero, uh, I've got an open coal um, dreadnought I'm making here, and that sounds great. And then I think people are very more pressed to what they're familiar with. So they've heard on forums Brazilian is the best, and they've heard on forums that African Black is the best, and they are very good. Um, but there's definitely a lot of variety out there you can kind of, or there'll be something else to match what you're looking for, really. Absolutely, yeah. What's your current favorite? I really like, this probably isn't going to be great for sales, but I really like a cedar walnut combo. Mm -hmm. um, I just like the kind of dark, kind of rich, deepness that the cedar gives and then the water just really pairs off even color wise it just has a nice visual aesthetic to it um so i really like cedar tops although i don't get a whole lot of orders for them because they do just like their sickers and their other on necks and, yeah you know, I, I feel like i've heard that a lot oddly enough but like i've got some really nice cedar tops i'm gonna just force people to take them at some point um, <laughs> i want them to enjoy it as much as i know they will uh, yeah. i mean it doesn't have the same Sitka has a nice kind of blooming to it. So over a period of time, it sounds a bit better every, every week. It will kind of sound a bit different. Well, I think Sitka is kind of out the bag. Mm -hmm. good. I mean, there won't be as much development in the sound. Um, and I didn't say that's a, that's a downside. You're starting no. out. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess you just have to find the right people. And maybe maybe it'll come, the the trends will come around on, on Cedar and Redwood in a little while. I guess Redwood, Feels like it's kind of popular right now, but maybe Cedar will have its heyday again. <laughs> yeah, where was taking all the fame? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's got the spotlight for the moment. Um, so you said that you spent a lot of time in the inlay department at Loudon, and uh, and I think looking at your guitars, you can not that I would say that you're you're like what you're doing is super similar to Loudon because they don't necessarily get as intricate with the inlay, but I guess I feel like there's sort of a an aesthetic like if you like. Loudon and you see your guitars you'll be like oh that's like kind of a, a further development on that style in a sense but you're still doing your own thing so do you was that sort of an influential for you or have you kind of gone and and taken influences from other places to kind of design your your inlays yeah I'd say it's like we're we're different chefs using the same you know ingredients in the same recipe we're going to get slightly different kind of results but I think what I took away from there was um one was that I kind of went off gloss finishes while working there because they do a lot of satin. Mm -hmm. um, then I do a lot of oil and wax finishes, which both keeps the instrument really light and then also has this really nice um, 
soft, tactile feel to it, really, especially on the neck. It just, you, you can't really, can't really beat it. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing I took away from there was that high gloss is fine. I really like it, but it's just not what I would be drawn to. It's not like kind of more, more matte satin sort of style. And then also their lack of kind of staining or coloring any of the woods. I would say that has influenced me as well because I think there's so much color in natural materials anyway. Um, I don't think there's, a, I mean, no, I would, even sunburst. I'm, I'm not, it's not my back, not my thing. Yeah. Um, if you wanted a darker top, you can have a torrified top, and then that will bring it the tone down. Um, or you might say sink a redwood if you really want some color into it. But I wouldn't go. I think maybe flame maple might be the only one I consider doing stain to because that pretty that almost craves it. Otherwise, I'd like to keep you know, the mean lays and the, and the finishing more kind of natural wood tones. Yeah, yeah, I think that's such a beautiful choice, and that's something that makes Loudon guitars and and your guitars and and. But yeah, I, I love that aesthetic style, and I think that appeals to a lot of people. So it makes sense to to really embrace the the natural beauty of the woods. Are you um, are you building many guitars for shops? Or are you primarily building for direct for customers? Um, I have a bit of a, a space now between. I've got some shows next month. Uh, oh, in nice. February. So I've got uh, two guitars. I'm trying to make all that show so it'll be kind of fresh on the market. Um, and I've just dropped off to. Um, to a shop in Bangor, which is north of Northern Ireland, right coast, for windmill guitars. Um, so I'm currently just kind of building a lot of stock and then trying to get demos made, getting people's hands um, so that they're available if anyone takes the notion to really want one. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And it also gives me a lot more flexibility with how I approach the build. Mm-hmm. Like I can make it more fancy or I can make it more of a standard model um, just, just on the whim. Uh, I really want to make a seven-string fan fret. No one's asked for it, but I really <laughs> want it to be made. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> what kind of players do you do you find kind of gravitate towards your guitars? Do you, have you noticed any trends of like, oh, it's a lot of this kind of player? Not particularly at the minute. I mean, there's a whole range of skills. Some people are very there was there's a few professional musicians who have picked up uh, one more than another, and then there's a lot of kind of bedroom practice players you know they're kind of enthusiastic guitar collectors or they're enthusiastic guitar players and they just wanted the next step they've done things they can get in the shop and they want something they've built and they've picked the thing they've found that and they want that and they've gone through the stack so they can mm-hmm. kind of have a little story of individuality for the piece and that's kind of some of the lessons i've had as well mm-hmm. awesome so you mentioned shows coming up um yeah what what shows are are in february i didn't realize that there were any so north England guitar show. There's one in Wirral, which is just outside Liverpool, which is a single mm-hmm. day um, on a Sunday. So um, just going over that one. And then there's also it's called the Guitar Show, which is probably one of the bigger ones in England as far as I've seen. It's a two-day event um, just outside of Birmingham in the, in the centre of the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've got a stand there. And I booked a quite a big stand. I think it, it seemed not as big in my head. And then I mapped out on the floor and I was like, oh, jeepers, this is, this is a big one. <laughs> there are three <laughs> meters and i've got to bring about seven or eight guitars to kind of fill the space um so that's what i've got working on the minute um nice fill up the stock yeah have you uh, i guess at this point with the pandemic and everything maybe it hasn't really worked out timing wise but have you um done any of the overseas shows at all or just stayed kind of in the no, british Isles? i really these are my first two shows actually so okay. um yeah so just 
it was this, it was just the next thing thing in my job progression, my career progression was to kind of get them into people's hands and get as many people to kind of see them and view them because you know photos and demos are great, but as soon as the people actually pick them up, they'll know for sure whether it's for them or whether it's not. Um, and even if that particular model isn't, then you can discuss with them what it would like and then take them down that sort of mission route as well. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, that's really exciting. I'm, I'm excited for you to go to those shows and hopefully get lots more customers out of that experience. Well, last couple of questions. What, what guitar have you built for yourself or would you build for yourself if you've had the time to do so? Yeah, like I said, I think I really want to, I haven't done a fan for it yet, so I really want to do one of those. And mm-hmm. then it was, I can't remember who it was now, but someone was playing a seven string fan for it and it just sounded great. It sounded huge. And he kept you know, doing the bass runs and it massive. So I want to do a uh, seven string fan for it. Don't know whether I want to keep it. If someone wants it, then I'm sure they can take it off me. But uh, it would just be <laughs> a lot of visual cues to what the extra options are as well. And then I've got an idea as well. I bought these Cubic Seronica gems. You, know, you can get them in kind of jewelry from my gems myself. Um, and I've inlaid, I've done some practice inlaying. They look fantastic just in like diamonds mm-hmm. um so i want a real no crazy royal edition um, <laughs> with gems um and some inlays and stuff so that's kind of it'll be a kind of showpiece yeah that plan as well oh very cool yeah that'll be like the ultimate bling <laughs> yeah, it's too much for some people but as long as one person thinks it's enough for them that's all i need so exactly yeah <laughs> But I mean, it'll be fun to build for sure. Like I'm sure just from the visual side of things, it'll be really, really satisfying. Great for the Instagram. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I always like to ask some like just fun, random questions at the end. Uh, what's your, what are your go-to listens for when you're working in the shop? Do you have any podcasts or albums that you're really, really into right now? I never really listen to any music with, with singing in it because I find I get distracted and I'm constantly skipping trying to find the song I want to listen to. So what I actually listen to most is um, lo-fi hip-hop from YouTube. <laughs> Just real mellow noise. Um, and also I've gotten into loads of uh, Agatha Christie audiobooks. So um, Hercule Poirot and Miss Marvel, uh, I listen to them all day. Um, there's loads, <laughs> loads of them, so I haven't had the same one twice yet. So I'm constantly just listening to um, old old murder mysteries. <laughs> and those don't distract you at all they're you're that's like no, just I seem, to, I seem to get on with it and also because you're working in the shed by yourself so it's like someone's reading your story while you're working yeah. away so nice <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I do this I have my like my true crime podcast I listen to like if I can if I'm doing something that's like not too if I'm not writing I can listen to the true crime podcast and it's like just entertaining enough <laughs> so listen to dozens I've never figured out who's done it, but you know still, yeah still on the ride <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to to mention or to promote at all? No, just just uh, thank you very much for letting me list my work through the the Carter Vintage Exchange site. It's been really good. Um, thanks for being so great with me, amazing. Um, really appreciative of your help um, getting my name out there and, and getting into the stores. And that's uh, no, been great. Really good. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for, for sitting down with me today. And it's, it's been so awesome to learn more about you and yeah, I hope that we can help, help sell your guitars and get a couple more into the U S and get them into some more people's hands. So yeah. Sometimes the U S would be fantastic. Yeah. And hopefully like, yeah, if somebody buys them here, then they'll come to the store and then I can try them first before they go out to the customer. (laughs) Selfishly. I want. 
Well, awesome, Jake. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Lindsay. It's been great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talking Guitar. I worked with Jake to spec out two mid-sized 485W models, one in mahogany and the other in Honduran rosewood with some lovely wood and abalone inlay. Both are available now on CVE, and you can learn more by the links in the show notes. More Luthier chats are coming up soon with John Slobot of Circa, JC Baxendale, Kevin Miderman, and more, so be sure to check back next week for the latest episode.